0: So, where do you draw the line? Do you draw the line at one cup of coffee? Just just one is, is one enough? Do you draw the line at, at one slice of pie? Do you draw the line at, at eight strips of bacon? You know, I mean, eight is kind of, you know, where you go. You know, we, we talk about drawing the line. We're, we're talking about limiting something or challenging something. It's, it's limiting or challenging. So, eight strips of bacon might be your limit. You know, you're you're not going to go beyond that. That's just, that's as far as you're going to draw the line at eight strips. Or eight strips of bacon might be a challenge to you. You know, you might say, oh no, I'm going to fight for the cause of bacon. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to go beyond eight strips. You know, you you may be that kind of person. That may be a challenge that you want to take up. So drawing the line, it, it might be limiting something. It might be challenging something. Or it could be distinguishing something. If you were to go to Philadelphia today, you would be driving and walking and riding through a town that was designed lines that were drawn up strategically by the executive director of the Philadelphia City Planning Commission from 1949 to 1970. He's been called the father of modern Philadelphia. And who was the executive director from 1949 to 1970? Well, his name was Edmund, wait for it. Edmund Bacon. That's right, Edmund Bacon. For a significant time, he made a huge investment in the planning of the city of Philadelphia. In fact, his designs, his drawing of lines, so to speak, was so significant that he appeared on the cover of Time magazine in 1964. And if you play the game, Edmund is also the originator of all of the degrees because not only is he the father of modern Philadelphia... He is also the father of Kevin Bacon. That's right. So all of your history wrapped up in one little illustration. All of your trivia for the rest of the week in this one place. So this whole idea of drawing the line, it's limiting or it's challenging or it's distinguishing. It's, it's separating things. We can see where things are. And then there's the super simple mathematical picture of drawing a line that says the shortest distance... From two point, between two points is a straight line. So again, if there's a plate of bacon over on the table, then I need to mentally draw a straight line to that plate. That needs to be my route. Even if I climb over the counter, what I have to do, straight line to the bacon. It's the straight line concept that we're going to use today to try to answer the question, maybe the biggest question, the most consistent question that seems to be asked around the world for as long as there have been people. And that question comes in a lot of different versions. Sometimes it sounds like this. Why do bad things happen? Or why do bad things happen to good people? Or why are there hurricanes and earthquakes and tragedies like 9-11? Why are there events like this if God is supposed to be all powerful and if God Is supposed to be loving. Well, that line of questioning and the answer that we're going to pursue this morning, it's an answer that is limiting. It is challenging and it is distinguishing, but it is an answer to the line of questions. And it is the answer of Jesus. And so what does Jesus have to say to this question of why? Well, let's find out. Look with me at Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. On the same occasion, what was this occasion? Well, let's pick back up in Luke chapter 12 just to see, starting in verse 54. And Jesus was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day. And it turns out that way. And then he says this, you hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky. But why do you not analyze this present time? Hypocrites. Jesus was really good at that whole politically correct way to win friends and influence people, right? Yelling hypocrites at them. So he looks at the crowd and he says, You guys, y'all know how to watch the weather channel. And you know how to make wise plans for a deadly storm. But you are foolishly tuning out the only channel that will lead you and help you escape the eternal catastrophe of your dead soul. You're missing the most important thing. And he calls them hypocrites because he's pointing out that many of these folks were very religious. They they claimed to be God followers. But they were rejecting Jesus and they were rejecting the message of the kingdom of God. And you know, it's not just religious hypocrites that reject Jesus, right? I mean, I know non-religious folks will reject Jesus too, right? They'll hear the gospel. They'll hear the the forecast of the gospel. They'll, They'll hear that the only way to be right with God is in and through Jesus Christ. But they'll reject that gospel forecast. Or they'll ignore that gospel forecast. Or they'll keep saying, Yeah, I hear the forecast. I'll deal with it later. The reality is, sometimes there's not a later. There's not a later. And so on this same occasion, when Jesus is communicating to them, listen, you're you're listening to the predictions of the weather, but you're rejecting the proclamation of the gospel. On that same occasion, Jesus presses in and he challenges them with the hard, sobering, guaranteed reality that everyone is going to die and that none of us are promised tomorrow. And so he presses in that conversation. And how does he challenge them? Look what he says again. Luke writes, Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So one or more people in the crowd, they said to Jesus, Jesus, hey, we're not just weather watchers. You know, we, we're paying attention to, to the times. We're watching the signs. We know how we're supposed to be living. I mean, Jesus, here's a good example. Did you hear about the Galileans that went to their worship service and and Pilate sent soldiers and and he killed them while they were worshiping? I mean, Jesus, you know, that's that's kind of strange. that They would be at a worship service and and they would lose their life. That had to be some kind of judgment from God, right? So see, Jesus, you know, Pilate, he doesn't send his soldiers to, to our worship services. Now we, we're good folks, and those kind of things don't happen to us. Must have been some judgment on them. Man, that's a wild way of thinking, right? I'm glad we never think things like that, right? We never hear a, a terrible news story, and, and we can't wait you know, to get to the TV and surf all the news channels and try to get all the details we can or, or go online and see what all the current updates are. Right, we, we never do things like that. We, we never check the TV listings a year later to find out when the miniseries about the same event is going to come out reenacted by celebrity actors. No, we, we never, never do things like that. We never go on social media and, and repost criminal reports or, or repost videos or, or quotes where politicians or, or pastors or other public figures or anybody makes a mistake or says the wrong thing and, and we put on there, man, you know, this, this guy should be fired. That lady should be fired. Can you believe this? He should be thrown in a pit of venomous snakes. Now, we never do stuff like that on social media, do we? We never get on the phone with our gossip buddies and say, oh, well, you know, so-and-so's daughter, she lost her job because, you know, she's got a drinking problem. Or, or oh, well, you know, so-and-so's son, well, he, he lost his wife because he can't keep a job. You know, we never do things like that, do we? So glad we've grown up and grown away from these crazy ways of these people back in the Bible, right? So how does Jesus respond? Listen to verse 2. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Jesus is asking him, do you think that these Galileans went to the worship service thinking, hey, this is going to be my last day, I'm going to be at the service. Do you think they went thinking that? He's asking them, do you think that, that these Galileans that were at the service, that the ones who didn't attend... The ones who weren't there, the ones who were out of town or, or sick or for some reason, the reason that they weren't there is that they're better people, that they're better Christians because they got spared from the other ones. You see, Jesus is, is drawing a line. He, he's showing them that their thinking is limited in a really bad way. He's challenging them with their sinful thinking, and he's trying to get them to distinguish between the ways of God and the ways of man. So what are the ways of man, the ways of man sound you know like this. Look out for number one. You know, grab life you know by the horns. If you can believe it, you can achieve it. To thine own self be true. Or this one that I came across that I've never seen: Believe in yourself, and you will be unstoppable until you get fired. <laughs> you know, until you get sick, until something goes wrong. You're unstoppable if you'll believe in yourself. Or, if you want to go to heaven, of course, you have to be a Southern Baptist, right? I mean, that's, that's how it works, right? See, see, even as Christians, we will believe lies. We, we will build our lives on lies like things like this that I just said, and then when tragedy comes, we act and sound like people who have never heard the gospel. Like, for instance, let's just say that, you know, a tornado were to come through a town. Oh, you know, that tornado came through town. It... You know, it leveled, it completely destroyed that bar outside of town because that was judgment from God on all their drunken sin. Okay. What about the church right next door to the bar that also got completely destroyed? God's judgment on the church? And what if the Sunday before the tornado came, that church baptized the biggest drunk from the bar? Because he had just gotten saved. And the reason he got saved is partly because of the consistent kindness and witness of the members of that church that showed him grace and mercy when they found him passed out in the parking lot on Sunday mornings. And over time, that grace and mercy began to have an impact on his heart. And he came to Jesus. In other words, that whole picture is just a reminder that none of us have the ability to read and interpret and understand all of the different aspects of the providence of God. So, we don't need to talk dumb. And we don't need to talk like we know exactly why every certain thing happened. Jesus Was already risen from the grave and he appeared to his disciples and and in the conversation the disciples began to ask, Hey Jesus, do you got your magic wand with you? I mean, is this is this is this the time are you getting ready to to make your kingdom happen right here, right now? Is that what's happening? And this is what Jesus said to them, Acts 1, verse 7. It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. They were earnest, Matthew Henry writes in their question. This is what he says. They were earnest in asking about that which their master never had directed or encouraged them to seek. They were passionate. They were earnest. They were putting it in the bulletin. There were slides about it. Man, they were really earnest about something Jesus said don't ever think about. That's not what I'm encouraging you to do. I gave you different directions. Matthew Henry goes on to say, Jesus had given his disciples instructions for the discharge of their duty, both before his death and since his resurrection, and this knowledge is enough for a Christian. In other words, the the gospel is enough. The truth of the Bible is enough. What we have been given is what we need to run with. Now, does that mean that we're not supposed to ask God questions? No, that's not what that means. Does it mean that we're not supposed to long for the kingdom of God to come? No, that's not what it means. It just means this. We need to be careful with demanding that God answers our questions the way we want him to answer them. And we need to be careful about demeaning God if he doesn't answer our questions the way we want him to answer them. And it also means that we should not go live in a van down by the River Jordan all by ourselves and cut ourselves off from civilization and act like we're out on some holy watch for the Messiah's return. We're not called to do that either. See, Jesus is always drawing a line, pressing us to follow him, and he does it in so many different ways. And in this moment, in this time, he asked them, so so you think that the Galileans who weren't there were somehow better people or or better Christians because they were spared? And he answers his own question. Listen to verse 3. Jesus says, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish Joseph and Mary they should have gotten Jesus to those etiquette classes right I mean because he's he's missing the mark he needs some couth here he's coming on too strong see Jesus says not only were the non-attending Galileans not better people or better Christians he says you are sinners you're dead in your sin and you need to repent first and you need to repent fast Again, Jesus is drawing a line. See, they were drawing a line from tragedy to the people who died in the tragedy. And Jesus says, you're drawing the wrong line. You need to draw a line from the tragedy to your heart. You need to draw a line from the tragedy to you. Lick Duncan writes, It's Jesus' way of saying, beware of practicing a religion that talks about everybody else's business but your own. He goes on. Beware of practicing a religion that's ready to explain what God is doing to a nation or what God is saying to another group of people, but that never asks the question, Lord, what are you saying to my heart? See, Jesus has taken a, a moment of evil. He's taken a moment of tragedy. And rather than explain it away, or rather than explain it in a way that might appease the crowd, Jesus loves the crowd. He loves them. And so he tells them, look at this tragedy and draw the line fast. Look at the tragedy and say to your own heart, if that had been me, would I be ready to meet That's not mean. That's loving. That's not mean or uncaring toward the victims. That is loving to the living. Jesus showing great, great love says, repent. Do I want my kids to make decent grades and and get a decent job and live in a decent house that's not mine off on their own? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I want that. Do I want them to have those things more than Jesus? No. No, I don't. What would it profit them if they gain a great education and a great job and great benefits and die without Jesus? What profit is that? That's how Paul said it in Philippians 3 verse 8. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All things. That doesn't mean all things are evil. The education and the job and the house and the cars and the trucks and the boats, those aren't evil. But they're not Christ. And so compared to Christ, all of those things have to be considered inferior because Jesus is so valuable. His surpassing value is that great. Years ago, I think about the time I started to be a pastor, um, I started using hymnals in my Personal devotion time, and if you've never used a hymnal, and I really never had growing up, but um, I kind of learned how to use a hymnal, and it was kind of fun. And there's a lot of stuff in here that you can do. So for your recreation this week, take a hymnal with you. I don't, you know, we'll find more. There's some back here in, in one of these rooms, and but but it's amazing. There's all kind of ways that you can use this hymnal to just kind of encourage your devotional life. And one of those things I discovered uh, because I'm, I'm mildly musical was there's this section called the Metrical Index of Tunes. And it's great, it has all these numbers, and so if you find a number and it has a bunch of little hymns by it, you can actually sing certain hymns with a different tune. Sometimes we do that every now and then, but it's, it's really fantastic because you know, sometimes there's hymns you can't sing, they're just hard, you know, and, and there may be a tune that you know that makes the words easier to sing, uh, and so from time to time we'll, we'll even do that on, on Sunday mornings. Uh, but one of those is a familiar tune, and I'm going to put that tune to the words of a, a hymn that was written, or just part of a hymn, uh, that was written in the 1700s by William Hammond. And it goes like this All unholy and unclean, I am nothing else but sin. On thy mercy. I rely, give me Christ, or else I die. A little different, right? A little different than just Jesus loves me. But is it not equally loving to say, if I don't have Christ, I die eternally? My soul experiences the the horror of death forever. And so what Jesus is saying is when tragedy strikes, draw a line from the tragedy to you and say to your heart, oh God, please, please give me Christ because without him I have nothing. I have nothing. And then Jesus moves it beyond even just tragedy. Look at verse 4. Or do you suppose... That those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and, and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? So maybe the same folks that brought up the, the story of, of the worship service and the Galileans, they, they brought up this somewhat natural disaster. And it seems that, that there was a tower somewhere near the pool of Siloam and, and that the tower fell over and 18 people were killed. And so Jesus, he heads in the exact same direction. He says the same things. He asks the same questions. Do you think any of these people thought that when they were standing by the pool that day, that would be the last time they would walk by that pool? He says, so you're saying that the people that were ten feet to the right of this crowd, that just missed the rubble, that they were somehow better people or better Christians because they didn't perish? Jesus is again drawing a line. He's showing them that their their way of thinking was limited. He was challenging their sinful thinking, and he was trying to get them to distinguish between the ways of man and the ways of God. And again, he answers the question himself. Look at verse 5. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus, again, says repentance, repentance, repentance. He, he says the exact same thing. He draws their attention for their need of repentance. He says, in times of evil tragedy, draw a line to you. Have you repented? Are you right with God? Have you been saved? That's not a scare tactic. That's, that's just Jesus. That's, that's how he talks. That's how he always talks. It's how he's still talking today. He says, if there's a natural disaster, draw a line from that to you, to your heart, to your mind, to your soul, and ask, have you repented? Are you right with God? Are you saved? Again, it's not a scare tactic. This is how Jesus talks. This is what Jesus says. So are you ready to meet God? (laughs) Come on, Dow. It's Sunday morning. I've heard that before. Fine. I'll say it again. Are you ready to meet God? It's not a scare tactic. It's a fantastic, glorious truth if your answer is yeah. And if it's no, it's a fantastic, glorious day to change your answer, to be found in him, to be saved, to repent. What does that even mean? What does it mean to repent? Somebody described it as a a double turn so you turn away from sin, but you turn to God. See, it's not enough just to turn away from sin. A lot of people try this. Well, I'm, I'm going to pray the sinner's prayer, and I'm going to join the church, and I'm going to get baptized, and, and I'm going to start doing right. But the problem is, if you try to clean your life up, even with religious activity, eventually you're going to get dirty again. You, you can't keep yourself clean. It, it doesn't work like that. See, repentance leads you to turn away from loving Sin and turns you to loving God's truth. Paul said this to the Romans, Romans 12, 9, Abhor from what is evil, cling to what is good. Hate, like with a holy hatred, with, with holy horror. Hate evil, hate sin, and then turn to God. Turn to that which is good. Turn to his mercy. Repentance does not mean that we'll never sin again. That's not what it means. You can't can't repent one time and then that's good. You're covered for the rest of your life. Repentance is ongoing. But what repentance means is that when we're truly repenting, we're not treasuring sin. We're not worshiping sin. We begin to treasure Jesus. We begin to worship him. It is a turning to him and turning away from evil, turning away from sin. The sobering, harsh reality is this. If you're not consistently repenting in your life, then you may not be a Christian, because a Christian is always standing in need of repentance. Unless, unless I miss something going through the church rolls, and one of y'all is perfect, you know We're always standing in need of repentance. Always. See, we're prone to wander. We're prone to love our ways more than God's ways. And so we have to repent, and we have to repent, and we have to repent. It's a constant turning. Lig Duncan again says this, repentance means grieving over our sin, not grieving over getting caught, not grieving over getting embarrassed, not grieving over the consequences, but grieving over our sin. See, that's different. Let me just confess for us. Most of us, we grieve over getting caught, you know, because we would have kept doing it. It's just we got caught. And so now we feel bad. You know? We're embarrassed, so we feel bad. But we didn't feel bad before we did it. See, that's the, the danger and the lies of the enemy. He, he convinces us that it's okay. And then we don't grieve over the sin. We just grieve if we get caught. He goes on. And when we've gotten to the point that it's what we've done that bugs us, not what it cost us, not how embarrassed we are about it, but what bothers us is what we've done. We've, we're bothered with our sin. That's when we're getting towards gospel repentance. It's a gospel repentance. We, we grieve over what we've done. Not that we got caught. Not that there's some shame. But we grieve that we did it to begin with. We grieve that we thought it to begin with. That's a pretty simple and powerful picture of repentance. And so I want to just super fast apply it in two ways. Very practical. J.C. Ryle said this. Let every returning birthday find us hating sin more and loving Christ more. He was a wise old saint who said, I hope to carry my repentance to the very gate of heaven. That's good. If it's your birthday today, open the present of hating your sin. Serious, it's the best present you'll get all day long. This is a fantastic reminder. Remind yourself this on your birthday. This year, I am going to start hating my sin more than I did last year because it is the best present you will get on your birthday to hate your sin more. I promise. One more practical picture. Gary Thomas, author and minister, is writing about difficulties in marriage. And this is what he said. Couples don't fall out of love so much as they fall out of repentance. Repentance. Repentance affects every area and every relationship in your life. So if you are not repenting, You are damaging your life. You are damaging your spouse. You are damaging your kids. You are damaging your community. You are damaging your church. You're damaging everything because of a refusal to repent. It's not so much falling out of love. It's it's falling out of repentance. Watch and see the transformation that could start happening in your home if regularly when people fail, they say, please forgive me not when they get yelled at or in trouble well, I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry yeah that that's not you're not <laughs> you know your body language says I am not sorry I'm saying this because I got caught but repentance just oh I hate what I've done please forgive me what would happen if that became regular whether it's the first time you're hearing this or whether you've heard it before and and it's feeling fresh, please heed the words of Jesus. Repent, repent, repent. The Bible, especially the words of Jesus in the gospel, gives us a lot of different answers for why things happen. It doesn't necessarily give us the answers we want or demand, but it does give us answers. And no matter what our tragedy or our difficulty or our disaster or anything else we may face, there is one message that is very clear that comes from heaven. And it goes like this, Psalm 103, verse 10. God has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. How do I know that's true? You're sitting here. We're in this room. This church exists. Right now, in these blue pews, you are sitting on the cushions of mercy. And right now, I am standing on this stage on top of the wood of mercy. We have great mercy right now. We have not been dealt with. And even more, through Jesus Christ, for those who are saved, we will not be dealt with as we deserve. Because of the blood of Jesus. Or as one of my Arkansas buddies has said, everything above hell is icing on the cake. Salvation is everything. So in the face of tragedy with the Galileans, in the face of disaster with the tower at silo, Jesus is calling us to draw a line to our own souls, to draw a line from us to God. That's what we should do First, that's not what we should do only. We draw a line to us, and then we draw a line of being gracious and merciful and loving and helping those in need. But we don't skip over drawing the line to our own hearts. We don't skip over that question, Lord, Lord, where am I with you? So in the middle of these strong words of repentance, these strong words of hell, of, of damnation, of condemnation, is there, is there any hope is is there any good news in these hard words is there something on the other side of repentance that we can find some solace in christina fox is a a wife a mom an author a few years ago she wrote an article about how hard it is and how difficult it is to talk to your children about the hard things of life she she listed things like like death and and divorce and, and abortion and other heartaches And then then we would add to that hurricanes and and earthquakes, things like 9-11. How do you talk to your children about these things? It's difficult. It's hard. And this is what she said. I know many more situations and hard discussions will come in my life as a parent. As much as I'd like to avoid it, I can't. And I can't sugarcoat the realities of life. But I can give my children hope. What kind of hope can we give? This is what she says. By recounting the story of creation. I love that. I'm going to give my kids hope. I'm going to start all the way back at the beginning. By recounting the story of creation, of the fall and redemption, I can help them understand what happened to God's perfect world. How Jesus came to save us and how one day all the hard and painful stories of life will end. They'll end. It's not a fairy tale. This isn't an animated movie. They will end. And then she says this. And then we'll begin a new chapter. One that will never end. That's... That's astounding hope that the chapters of disaster and the chapters of tragedy and the chapters of hurricanes and the chapters of earthquakes, the chapters of all of the difficulties and trials and tribulations of life, there is a promise they will end. And when they end, you will either be a friend of God or you will be his enemy. And so Jesus says, repent. But he doesn't just say, this is what Jesus said. And listen, this is what Jesus is still saying today. And it's this. Do not let your heart be troubled. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you you may be there also. With me. That's Jesus.